world, and welcome to another fun, fun edition of Here's a Guy. I'm your host, Alex, and I'm joined by my usual illustrious co-host. Uh, first, my older brother, Cody, coming to us live from Illinois. Cody, how are you doing? I'm feeling a little discombobulated at the moment, um, as though I were stuck <laughs> in a Twilight Zone. Hey, wait a minute. You're not Alex. Alex is not nearly that nasally. No. He's way more annoying. <laughs> As, as you might have gleaned by uh, the way we're introducing this episode and the fact that we are introducing this episode, um, we are a two-man operation yet again here tonight. Um, but, you know, as Jack John always says, a two-man operation never steered me wrong. So we're going <laughs> to keep, uh, keep pushing on. And we have two stories for you tonight. Might be a bit of an abbreviated episode, but we've got plenty of other stuff to talk about here as well. It it could so, be uh, abbreviated, but without Alex here to steer us back on course, I feel like this might be the longest episode ever. It's either going to be an abbreviated episode or it's going to be five hours long and 90% of it is going to be completely unlistenable. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't Because wait. you are drinking during this episode and I mean, I've got liquor sitting like right the fuck <laughs> yeah. over there and something tells me I would succumb to peer pressure if you were to apply very much. A, a, a light, light twisting of the arm, and oh, Cody's already got the bottle. <laughs> I uh, hadn't even started twisting yet. What the fuck? <laughs> uh, but but yes, we we are we are down, Alex. Today, uh, Cody, you you being Alex's brother, I know that you were in contact with him leading into this. I didn't get much of what was going on. Do you have any like scoop for me on on to the disappearance of Alex? Yeah. So. Um... He he wanted us to tell you all how sorry he was that he couldn't make it uh, because he has the flu. Um, I am going to do no such thing, though, because that would be a lie. And uh, I, I seriously I don't know why you guys keep trying this, because every time every time one of you sends in some bogus reason that you're gone, we have to reveal the full and frequently embarrassing extent of the truth. So Alex right now is. Uh, currently in a bit of a disagreement with his cat freddy uh freddy the large cat has decided to uh become the alpha of the house and he has uh submitted in alex uh to alex in writing uh that he will be taking over and that he expects a, a signed surrender by the end of the day uh there is something of a standoff right now uh currently freddy is just lobbing cat toys at alex while he's hiding behind the couch um if you've never seen freddy uh He's about four feet long and weighs 280 pounds. So it's uh, <laughs> becoming it, it's really becoming a situation over there. And uh, Alex is holding out, but I don't know for how long. Uh, so, yeah, we will uh, we we will be back as a three man operation one way or another next week. Whether that third man is Alex <laughs> or Freddie uh, will depend on the next couple of hours. It's it's a tense situation down there. The United Nations have been contacted. Uh, their response was, and I quote, what the fuck? Stop calling us. <laughs> so we'll let you know uh, how that develops uh, as it develops. Yeah. But for the moment, yeah, Alex engaged in a a, a brutal uh, standoff struggle for power with uh, a gigantic cat. Yeah, it, it's not wise to go one on one with Freddie. Little known fact, he was a walk on uh, his freshman year at Mizzou and ended up playing D tackle for a couple snaps. So. You don't want to go. You don't want to go in the trenches with Freddie. You will lose ten times out of ten. No, you'll come back with no fingers like Jason Pierre-Paul. Um, a, re a real firecracker situation uh, breaking in St. Louis. So, uh, so yeah, everybody, uh, 
prayers up to Alex. Oh, uh, something that I forgot to mention earlier that uh, Jack John, I don't know if you've seen this, but I, I needed to address this. So first of all, in the news here recently, uh, I wanted to bring attention to the fact that we have uh, the the second pope to to die during here's a guy tenure uh, <laughs> just happened here recently. Pope Benedict, he was the he was the Nazi one. <laughs> not not the guy we've got now. He was the he was the old uh, cranky old German guy before that. It, it's um, odd. But he he joins uh, Pope Michael David Bowden uh, on the the great side the other side of that gold curtain and uh, yeah I, I just I, I don't want to claim responsibility for us killing all the popes but uh, you know I, I just it's an interesting coincidence and I thought I would just put that out there. Yeah, it's odd. I don't know of any podcast with with this amount of runtime that's killed this many popes. I, I think we have a a gift. Uh, and quite honestly, I look forward to killing even more popes uh, in, in the coming years. Um, the Swiss guard man holding a large bayonet <laughs> in my back would like me to point out that we did not actually have anything to do with uh, either of those popes' death. Yeah. Uh, it was just a bit of fortunate circumstance, and uh, we thank our our friends at the Vatican for being so understanding. And if you, they could please uh, see their way clear to releasing our families, we would be be eternally grateful. I would I would love to be investigated for like something that high because then all of the government agencies will just look into my web history to see like what kind of like devious shit I was doing. And they'll be like, Oh, he's just watching a lot of like Minecraft videos. I don't know how this relates to the killing of the Pope, but there's something here. (laughs) Oh my God. This is, this is just, this is just extraordinarily stupid (laughs) YouTube videos. Just, it's just nothing but that. No wonder he went crazy. We have no record of him leaving the country, but somehow through Minecraft, he killed the Pope. <laughs> they should uh, like put that as an Easter egg in Minecraft. <laughs> like there's a command where you can kill the Pope. Yes, absolutely. So, but I, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, somebody put this out on Twitter and there is apparently a. And the Vatican, first of all, is denying that this is true. They're saying that this is a myth, but. Um, let's just say they have a history of denying that certain things are true when they are. <laughs> no. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not necessarily going to take them at their word on this or anything else for that matter. But, um, there's this picture of a very, the only way I can describe it is a very Catholic hammer. Um, it's, it's <laughs> like gold and white and it's got a golden head and it's got all kinds of weird shit carved into it. and. They say that uh, they hit dead popes on the head three times with this special uh, dead pope hammer just to ensure that they are, in fact, dead. Um, so that raised a couple of questions for me. And if anyone could answer these for me, I'd be eternally grateful. First of all, I put this one out on Twitter, but just for all of you non-Twitter folks. So when they say they hit him three times on the head... <laughs> Do they mean they tap him like maybe they're trying to crack an egg? Yeah, is that like a reflex do test? Just, do they, yeah, do they, or do they just like really get in there? They're like, well, if he wasn't dead before, he's going to be now because we've already done the thing with the white smoke. So, yeah, like you, you can't have, night. you can't have two popes. We've, I think we've covered what happens when you have two popes. So, like, you've got to really, you know, like Roy McElroy, like yeah, lean into that eyes. one. <laughs> 
But now I'm also picturing yeah. like a Bugs Bunny mallet sized hammer and he's just like whacking him. I'm just I'm just picturing like some archbishop coming <laughs> into this holy chamber with the body of the Pope laid out on a nice slab and taking this sacred hammer. The name of the father, yeah. the son, the Holy Spirit, and then just just <laughs> absolutely starts wailing on him like I just I. I know that that is offensive imagery to yeah. some. Uh, I would like to point out that I do not care. Uh, that is an extremely funny thing for me to picture. I and, funny yeah, enough. I, I, I've got to know. I've got to know how hard you're allowed to hit a dead pope with that hammer. Funny enough, I have in-laws that are in Europe right now, and they they stood in line and went through the processional to see the pope. I I should ask them if they saw hammer indents in his forehead. <laughs> See, that was actually my next question. It's like, has has anybody has that ever really been necessary? Like, ha, have any of them actually woken up? <laughs> you got like a zombie pope on your hands, and you're like, well, now I'm glad I have the hammer. They're just doing the whole tap, tap, tap. Oh fuck! What a name! <laughs> it, you it, see three cardinals out in the out in the hallway going, "Fuck! I, I'm never gonna get to be the pope." I knew we should have added more holy water to that hammer before we started murdering this guy. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, anybody that can answer either of those two questions. Again, the Vatican says it's a myth. Uh, I, I disagree categorically <laughs> with, with that. I, I think this is another one of those things that they're keeping secret, like uh, Bigfoot and Slenderman and Barney <laughs> and all those other things that are locked away in Area 51. The the Pope Hammer is is too stupid to make up. It has to be real just on I idea alone I want it, I want it to exist. I'm I'm fully in on the Pope Hammer, I think. Exactly. And you know, that's one of those things where if somebody did make that up, that's a genius thing to make up. Yeah. Because it is it's really stupid, so it's funny, yeah. but it's also not so stupid that it's not believable. Yeah. Like I absolutely would believe that. It like if if Today, Pope Frankie were to pop out and be like, yeah, the hammer thing's real. Yeah, we really do the hammer thing. I'd be like, yeah, of course you do. That's exactly the kind of weird shit you do. I I want the next Pope to come out and be like, yeah, the hammer's real. I carry it every day. And we've got a cool Pope finally. <laughs> Suck on these Pope nuts. <laughs> I just, I don't know why, but I really want a hung Pope. <laughs> well, we have our, uh, our episode title. <laughs> I think pretty conclusively. Um, is a hung Pope. What happens when they can't decide who the next Pope is going to be when they do that big uh, conference around the next one? We're, we're stuck. Ah, we've got a hung Pope. It's eight to eight again. What, what I love about the idea of hung Pope is it's offensive and then you listen to it and then you're more offended. Yeah, it, it can be, it can be two different things and neither of them are good. And once again, just to reiterate, before you uh, contact us at here's a mailbox at gmail.com. Um, we, we do not care. Yeah. I, I promise we don't care. A any, any and all attempts to get us to do things in better taste will be categorically laughed at and ignored in that order. So <laughs> now that uh, we have already blown this whole damn thing up with that first segment, Alex has gone uh, for uh, 10 minutes and the, the I show's already canceled. I can see the forehead vein popping out already <laughs> for when he listens to this. So, um, we have a fun bit of listener mail at, uh, again, here's a mailbox at gmail.com. We appreciate you guys sending us in stuff to talk about questions, comments, uh, threats, 
uh, manifestos, all of those things. Uh, please continue sending those so we have something to talk about. We uh, got another one from friend of the show, Jeremy, who always I, he really likes to make us think this Jeremy. And I, I'm very glad he does because he always comes up with really great prompts. So uh, Jeremy, like uh, myself and Alex and Jack, uh, Jeremy's a reader. So, yes, he uh, has a book related prompt this week, which we always love. Uh, says uh, my prompts this week. All have to do with books you read in middle school or high school. You can pick whichever prompt speaks to you or do more than one. So he, he gives us three possible prompts. What's a book you read in middle or high school that you have fond memories of? What's a book you read in middle or high school that you read again later in life and had a new appreciation for? And what's a book you read in middle or high school that you read again later in life and thought, yikes, I don't know how to feel about this now. <laughs> so uh, I will throw the floor open to Jack John first. Jack, yeah. uh, answer any combination of those questions that you like. I'll, I'll do kind of like a one and a half. I know like for, for me, the, the book that like stood with me the most in high school was Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried, uh, which was a beautiful novel just about like the humanity of people in war and kind of like the ways that people are coping in wartime. And it's just a fascinating book just filled and filled with trauma. Uh, not not yeah. as bad as like All Quiet on the Western Front, where just like everything is depressing at all times. Uh, mm. But a, a good moderate amount of depression to give a 16 year old for sure. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, so that's so that's one. Yeah, uh, you said you had another and, one there and one. I don't I don't read as much as I should, but I feel like if I went back and reread uh, Chronicle of a Death Foretold, which is a book uh, that I was supposed to read in high school, but didn't. I remember reading about half of it and enjoying it. And I feel like I would appreciate it more as an adult if I actually tried to sit down and, and look at the words on the page and pretend like I comprehended them. Uh, so that's that's kind of a, a book I feel like I missed out on that I should probably try to uh, probably should try to read this year. I think I still have it in my parents' yeah, now house. That you, now that you know how to read, <laughs> try reading it again. I'll have to get a big um, print version for sure. Yeah. So for me... um. I mean, the uh, for que question number three is the one that jumps out because it's very relevant to a lot of the discourse uh, book you read in middle or high school that you read later and thought, oh, shit, um, this was a little problematic. <laughs> so, I mean, the obvious one for our generation is Harry Potter, right? Yeah, I was With, wondering uh, if that would come up. Well, I mean, I, we have to we have to address the elephant in the room. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, I mean, part of it is that jk rowling has just outed herself as such a terrible human yeah um that that alone really kind of i and it doesn't have to taint the books for you necessarily yeah. i understand people who just say i like the books i like the content i'm gonna read them for their you know the what what they do for me and ignore all of the shit that she's done separately which is okay but after that started coming out, there was some stuff in the books that a lot of people like the I, I remember the first time somebody pointed out the whole goblin Jew allegory thing to me. Yeah. And my jaw was on the floor. I was like, oh, I, I was like uh, Keegan Michael Key at the end of the Key and Peel a racist <laughs> country song sketch. <laughs> oh, I see it now. Oh, damn. An all time sketch. I'm just trying to sing yeah. a song about a tire swing. 
Uh, but yeah, no. When yeah. you realize that, you know, hey, these goblins run the banks, and oh, they're greedy, and oh, they're gold hungry, and you're like, oh. And fuck. they got great big hooked noses. And <laughs> yeah, and also I called them shoes once, uh, but it was a misprint. Yeah, and li- literally all of the <laughs> other negative Jewish stereotypes that have existed since uh, borderline biblical times. Like, yeah. Yeah. Pretty fucking bad, man. Um, and also like the way that she named some of her characters, like they, you know, naming the one Asian girl in the entire school Cho Chang. Yeah, it's like, fuck, man. <laughs> really? You're like, you, you like, could have just I, I named understand. her. Could have named her Stephanie, man. You didn't have to do this. Yeah, could have been Stephanie Chang. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it just. And those that mistake is one that I can see a standard out of touch middle class white person making. Yeah. Um, and then but also the way that she's responded to literally every bit of criticism thrown her way. Like she is somebody who had the entire world sucking her uh, metaphorical dick for about 20 years. Yeah. And then she finally caught shit for some shit that she said before she really had a chance to think about it. And like most rich narcissists who've been that spoiled do she decided to double down out of pure spite yeah. and refusal to admit that she, it is possible for her to be wrong so and, and yeah uh that that whole franchise really just kind of sucks yeah. anymore and and while doubling and tripling down just also waited just straight up just like turfdom and it's just like oh by the way i'm a transphobe ha <laughs> and then you yeah. fumble the whole bag for your entire life gg no re dude i saw something i think this was also on twitter that said that the harry potter like franchise property as yeah. a whole uh because they just released that new video game their profits as a whole were down yeah. like 40 percent this year the game was it's like fuck yeah dude the game was gonna be like this huge game that's been like years and years in the making and i feel bad for the devs because so many people have been boycotting it on like name alone and then everything else that comes out about it and it's just like yeah no fuck this entirely yeah, you everything about this sucks. Yeah. Um, but for a similar uh instance for me, so this is a book series that I, I maintain is very well written. It's very entertaining. It's for kids. Um, I started reading these when I was about nine or ten, and um, the, I don't know if you're familiar with the Redwall series. It's uh, they're they're like uh, high fantasy Lord of the Rings type stuff. I but think I know you're talking about yeah. animals. Yeah. Animals as the main characters. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sword and sorcery type stuff featuring animals. And they are generally pretty well written. I mean, they all, all kind of have the same basic like plot or, you know, the, the, the stories are very similar, but there's only so much you can do with that. And also they're for like 10 year olds. So, you know, they can't handle a, a ton of different, but the problem with that, I, I went back and read one um, a couple years ago because I remember like, oh, I really liked these when I was a kid. And I was reading it and I was like, oh, this is very good. But <laughs> central throughout the entire novel series is the idea that there are, you know, th- there's good and evil. They exist in this. But I mean, they are basically divided by species. Oh, like there are good animals and bad animals like foxes, rats, mm. uh, uh, stoats, all weasels, all those things. Those were the bad animals, all of those. And like they said a couple different times throughout the books, they're like, oh, no, you can't trust a weasel. 
or something like that. Mm. Like that they're 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 bad. And then of course on the good side you had like mice and you know rabbits shit like that. You've all these soft colored animals. Yeah, I I never um I never picked up on it when I was a kid and then I read it later. I was like, all right, I know or at least I hope that you were trying to do this just to make the storytelling more easy and convenient and avoid a lot of complicated moral issues. Yeah. But man, that looks mm. really, really bad. Like that is, yeah. that is a principle that I don't think we need to be putting into children, especially in Britain yeah. any more than it already is. <laughs> when you're like the, the cute little adorable white mouse is always perfect and sweet and kind and the evil black rat. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. Hold oh. on. That's, Why has it got to be a black rat? Let's yeah. not let's not say that. Yeah, no that that is that's touchy. That's mm, yeah, not a fan of that. Yeah, that that one really, uh, that one really kind of, <laughs> you know, I I I and I did not. It was so striking because I did not register it at all. Yeah, when I was a kid, all, because I was a ten year old kid yeah. in a tiny little town where everyone is pretty much the same. Yeah, those kinds of issues not really on my mind at that point. I'll even I'll even throw in like so I, I I've got a kid that's gonna be born next month, which is terrifying. But like we're getting a lot of kids' books. And a lot of like the kids' books from like our generation just kind of teach kids to be dicks. And then in the last two pages, they're yeah. like, hey, don't be a dick, actually. Uh like so I think it's like PJ yeah. Funny Bunny, where it's like there's an, a book where like he's like a complete dick to his sister and like visibly shows like him pulling her hair and shit and is being a fucking horrible person. And then in the end, he's like, I learned my lesson. But for like the first 18 fucking pages, it's just like, hey, look at this evil shit you can do, kids. Well, I, I think you'll be happy. I did also. I'm bringing the uh, the little one a book. It's one of my favorites when I was little. But there is no assholery in that book. <laughs> I can tell you that. I can't wait. So. Yeah, I, I it's nothing offensive. Trust me. I'll I'm, save all that shit for when he turns five. I, I've got to say, I'm I'm not disappointed, but out of all of the gifts we got, we never got go the fuck to sleep. And I'm just going to have to buy that on my own, which I'm OK with. But um, I can't believe nobody. I Maybe they thought that was low hanging fruit. I mean, it, it's me. So the odds are I probably had that like 10 years ago, honestly. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I, those are those are our answers. And once again, thank you very much, Jeremy. Um, and if Alex wants, he can weigh in on his response uh, or responses uh, next week when presumably we will be back with a full lineup uh, of either the two of us and Alex or the two of us and Alex's cat. Um, so. As much as I appreciate responding to listener prompts. And that is, again, a gentle nudge to all of you to send whatever prompts you may have to here's a mailbox at gmail.com. That is not what we are here to do. We're here to talk about some guys. And without any further delay, let's jump into it. Jack, John, can you can you can you lend me a hand here? Uh, Yeah, I think I remember it. It's uh, the guys. Adequate. Flat as ever. Not a not a sharp note in sight. So I am up first this week and we're going to be discussing a something of a sequel. So I had last week's guy, Henry Cyril Paget. I mentioned I'd had him on my list for a long time. This is somebody else I've had on my list for a long time. And until I was looking down to see who I wanted to, to cover this week, I did not notice the serendipity between these two topics. 
luckily for me and all of you, I caught it in time. So, this week we're talking about Hetty Green. Hetty Green is worth uh, comparing to Henry Cyril Paget because Henry, if you remember, was a crazy rich kook who spent money as though he were trying to spend all of his money. Like, if he just said, in six years I want this all gone, that's how he lived his life. We now turn to the entire other end of the spectrum. Somebody who was so averse to spending money for any reason whatsoever that it, it led to some uncomfortable situations down the road. I'm, I'm picturing like Scrooge McDuck level of gold coins in like a cellar somewhere. I can't wait to figure out what this person's doing. Well, so the difference between Scrooge McDuck and Hetty Green is that Scrooge McDuck actually like paid for a big mansion and to have that vault put in where he could dive into his gold coins. Gotcha. Hetty Green would have pissed herself at that notion. <laughs> and we will get into more detail on that uh, here shortly. Hetty Green was born Hetty Robinson in 1834 in New Bedford, Massachusetts. She was born into money into the richest whaling family in the city. Fuck. That's that's big money. We're the we're the top whalers in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Apparently back then that meant something. Um her family were Quakers, which is a, an older Christian denomination. Uh the Quakers always to me when I read about them were fascinating and not in, not for the reasons that a lot of like Christian offshoots were fascinating back then because of the wacky shit they believed. The Quakers just almost made too damn much sense <laughs> for their time. Like they, they genuinely like their principles were basically just be a good person. Right. And everyone else was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> you, you insane no, person. No threats of, no threats of torture. If you worship a different God or anything like that, like that's, uh, you guys are nuts. But anyway, um, in addition to the whaling trade, her family, uh, very heavily profited from trade with China. At age two, she was sent to live with her grandfather and grandmother. The reasons for this, I'm not sure of, but I'm guessing it's just because she was like stealing all of the pennies out of everyone's change <laughs> jar and hoarding them. It's probably just like a case of just like, I'm too rich to have a two year old. Go live with Nana. <laughs> Go live with Nana until you're 18. Then we'll do your debutante ball and uh, <laughs> I'll try and remember your name. So she goes to live with her grandfather and grandmother where she was introduced to the world of business. Ugh. Yeah. I, I like the idea of a two year old, a two year old getting introduced to business. As a child, Hetty would read stock and commerce reports aloud to her grandfather while he was working and picked up some of his business methods. Jesus. So basically even at, at a very young age, Hetty the second she was introduced to this whole thing, she was like glued to it. She was extraordinarily interested in this stuff for such a young kid and just kind of became a sponge. She started absorbing everything she could possibly learn. I'm now picturing Hetty as boss baby. Like she's got a little tiny suit on and she's like working numbers. She's got an acabus in her, like in her crib. You know, um, that's, that's pretty close. Really? Uh, that's, <laughs> That's the best pop culture analog we have, I think, for for Hetty at a young age. Um, after her grandfather passed away when she was, I think, about 10, um, she returned home to her mother and father and began learning business uh, from her father. 
eventually becoming the family bookkeeper at the tender age of 13. Jesus. God damn. I I wonder if that's like almost intentional because like 13 year olds, like even like I I assume like at that like stage you're like, they'll probably be distractible. And you'd be like, oh, yeah, no, my books are clean. My daughter's running it. And she's like drawing like (laughs) butterflies. Then it's like the books are clean. (laughs) Meanwhile, you're just like skimming money underneath. And you're just like, yeah, no, totally clean books. My my daughter's a whiz with numbers. (laughs) Yeah, they they sent her to the Ebenezer Scrooge finishing school. (laughs) Um, This girl, this girl was literally a prodigy in the field of being a miser. (laughs) I did not think such a thing was possible. Um, her mother was pretty frequently sick, and so Hetty developed a really close bond with her father uh, over their mutual love of money, <laughs> uh, all things money related, making money, hoarding money, not spending money, but everything else about money. Uh, she and her father just absolutely loved. Her father eventually got out of the whaling business and invested heavily in shipping a very good business decision at that point in time, and that made him even richer. Like, look, this was a wealthy family that was now a rich, rich family. We, we, we could spend all of our money going out, finding the whales and, you know, dying uh, just to just to bring back some blubber. You know what the real money's in? The ship that gets you to the whale. Why, why are we why are we making this harder? I'm just picturing some turn of the century miser standing in the rain on the deck of a ship singing Billy Joel's The Downeaster Alexa at the top of his lungs. <laughs> That's a joke for like two people that listen, but I promise you the image is hilarious. Um, so after both of Hetty's parents had passed, she inherited a trust. So basically she got access to all of the money from their fortune that she needed for the most part, but somebody else was in control of both the principal income to the estate. And also, uh, you know, somebody had to kind of dole out the money to Hetty. Yeah. It's like, um, she hey. had no action. Sorry, is you're basically you're too young to have all this money at once, so we're gonna like siphon it to you a little bit. Yeah, I mean, part of it was her youth, and part of it was that she was a woman, which was oh um, yeah, of course, an obstacle that Hetty would run into, of course, multiple times over the course of her life. Eventually, uh, Hetty's favorite aunt, her dear aunt Sylvia, th- these two really got along well. Uh, she passed away. Her family members keep dying. That's another <laughs> thing I, I notice here, and I, I think it's it's worth pointing out. There is no evidence that she had any of them whacked, <laughs> but Pet- I'm just saying, these are rich people. Petty is slowly morphing into Stewie Griffin now to me, where she's just like slowly offing her family just to, to, to gain more power. So Hetty's Aunt Sylvia passed, uh, leaving half of her fortune to her favorite niece. Again, to be kept in trust with Hetty not having control over the principal. Sylvia and Hetty deeply loved each other. And how did Hetty honor their their uh, close bond and, and unique relationship? By trying to forge a will. Oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. So when Hetty, when the will came out, Hetty was like, I don't fucking think so, lady. <laughs> and she tried to forge an earlier will. that A, left everything to Hetty, not in trust. And also included a clause that invalidated all future wills. So basically just a clause that says, hey, if I make another will before I die, that one doesn't count. This is this is the last will. You know what? A, a for effort. I, I'm just imagining it's like written in crayon where it's like 
And also everyone has to call me queen and also everyone has to be nice to me and everyone has to be my friends. And if you're not my friends, you have to die now. Signed, Aunt Sylvia. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> yeah. So this will, not surprisingly, was ruled to be fraudulent and invalid by the courts. After five years of legal battling, Hetty somehow was actually awarded a settlement out of this. Not like a, not like all of the money, but yeah. enough. They were like, hey, you were technically given some of this money. And while legally I don't want to give it to you, I technically have to. Yeah, I I think I couldn't really get the specific legal details, but I think what happened was they were able to wrangle the money that was in trust out of trust. Like she still just got what was allotted to her, but I think maybe she actually got control over over it at the end. I'm not positive, but um, couldn't find a lot of details there, surprisingly, probably because it's boring and nobody cares. Um, <laughs> in 1867, Hetty married Edward Green, himself a millionaire partner in a merchant firm. Hetty's father stipulated in his will that Hetty's fortune would not be left to Edward Green. And before they were married, Hetty made him publicly renounce any claim to her money. Now, that might be a girl boss moment, or that might just be what she did to everyone in whatever room she happened to be in. <laughs> I need you to say out loud that you get none of my money. This money is mine, and none of it is yours. I need you to say that. Hetty just walks into a room. Any poor people better not think about my money while I'm in here. <laughs> hey, you know how I'm so much richer than you? <laughs> Keep it that way. I, I need you to put so. it in writing that I am better than you uh, and you are poor. <laughs> now, meanwhile, while all this is going on, she's getting married. Her cousins are like, are you fucking kid? She just tried to defraud our family <laughs> out of like a bunch of money. Or like it was ruled in court that she did that. <laughs> are we really just not going to do anything about this? So her cousins are trying to have her indicted for forgery, uh, which she did. Uh, <laughs> uh, related to the, of the will. And, and I mean, she didn't really have a leg to stand on considering that it had already been ruled in court by a judge yeah. that yes, this document is fraudulent and she was the one who brought it forward. So she decided that she and Edward had better skip town for a little while. Uh, they moved to England and had two children. Again, it was so fucking easy to run away from the law before like 1975. There's there's some heat on me. What if I just lived two towns over? <laughs> so uh, over in England, Hetty got started on investing as a way to make money Uh instead of just living off the income for in, from her inheritances and the, uh, the company that Edward had um, investing again, she had the Midas touch with this. She was known for her strategy of buying a bunch of stock when it was super low and seemed useless and just kind of rat holing it until it blew up and then selling a bunch of it at a much increased price. Okay. Now, this sounds obvious. As a matter of fact, this just sounds like basically how you're supposed to make money in the stock market. Yeah, yeah. However, here's the trick. You have to actually be able to predict which of this cheap garbage stock you bought will eventually go up significantly. Right. It's the whole thing, is being able to speculate on what's going to jump. And for Hetty, the way she did it, it didn't really matter when. 
just like, I can afford this right now. I'll sit on it. I think this is going to get big at some point. I don't need to get rid of it right now. So she was very patient with her stocks and it paid dividends, pun only slightly intended. <laughs> yeah, Hetty had the magic touch. Edward, however, he did not. Um, Edward was not good at, at, at the stock market. He just, he was not good at it. Uh, fine at merchanting, bad at, uh, at buying and selling stocks. They returned to the United States in 1873 and Edward immediately just started getting his ass kicked up and down wall street, like just losing, losing shit tons of money on bad investments. And Hetty actually had to bail him out using her own money multiple times. <laughs> Gonna be an awkward car ride Edward, home. The uh, yeah, the the straw that broke the camel's back was uh, when Edwards' bad investing uh, had a bank fail that he was in controlling interest of, of which uh, most of the capital in that bank belonged to Hetty. <laughs> so she lost like half a million of her own money, and she was like, "All right." goober i'm fucking done with you you well, clearly have no clue what you're doing i was fine when you were losing your money but now you've lost my money yeah that's that's a very heady green way of looking at it exactly um so they separated they never divorced and they got not really like they didn't seem to be really in a romantic relationship in their later days but they were like close at least they yeah. started spending time together again at that point, you're you're pretty much too old for the whole romance thing by the time they, they got, because it was a while before she forgave him for this. Um, as we all know, uh, holding grudges over money is the foundation of any great American marriage. So they were destined to, to be <laughs> together. After the separation, Hetty, despite still being extremely rich, started to show signs that Maybe, maybe she's taking this whole frugality thing a little too far. Um, she could afford damn near any, any place she wanted to live. She continued living in boarding, boarding houses and dingy flats. Part of Hetty's philosophy seems to have been, you can't spend all of your money if you never spend any of your money. I mean, I, I feel like at this point, like we've talked to a few, about a few guys and like, I bet stories of people just being stupid and blowing all of their money aren't too uncommon. And at this point, she's just like, all right, that's not happening to me. And I'm going to take the worst extreme to make sure that happens. Yeah. Um, she wore only one black dress, um, undergarments that were only replaced after they were completely worn out. Ooh. She never turned on heat or used hot water. Considering she lived in New York, this is fucking ballsy. Yeah. Come about January. <laughs> yeah, that winter is um, gotta be brutal. <laughs> and she rolled around in an old beat up carriage. Just <laughs> just out here looking like the fucking wicked witch of the West all day long. I mean, I if you look beat up. I don't think anyone's going to try to mug you. So maybe it's like an incognito, like out in public, like look mangy. No one's going to fuck with you. I, I can respect it, but at home I'm putting the heat on. So in fact, these things, in addition to her, some people found her unpleasant. It was more likely just that she didn't take any shit from anybody. 
Um, that earned her the nickname the Witch of Wall Street. Ah. Her diet consisted mainly of 15 cent meat pies. <laughs> so basically, this woman would have been a billionaire today and yet chose to live like us in college. Yeah, I'm, I'm imagining her like going through like an Aldi and like picking up a thing of bananas. And it's like, they're not on sale yet. I can't buy these. Dude, she would have loved the gas station bananas. Oh, a good gas station banana would go far for her. Uh huh. Yeah, she'd get like three meals out of it. <laughs> now, some of you may be hearing all of this and saying, oh, there's nothing wrong with any of this. She's just protecting her money. Well, ignoring all of the ways in which this sort of wealth hoarding is generally harmful and unethical scumbag type behavior. Right. This behavior extended outside of business. Like, as we talked about her lodgings, it wasn't just her business practices she was like this with. She was like this with fucking everything. I think the best example of this was when her son, Ned, ended up needing his leg amputated because they delayed treatment while Hetty tried to get him into a free clinic. <laughs> oh, fuck off. Yep. I'm imagining just, I'm just like imagining him out in the cart. Mom, it's turning green. <laughs> can we just can we do that? Can we do the thing, please? There's like two doctors who are just like, oh, do it for this price. And she's like, could you go lower? Could you get down to nothing? That's <laughs> what I want to pay. Look, he, he was born yeah, with the legs. To, she was trying to get it done for free. So. She also uh, worked out of instead of an office, she refused to rent an office. So she worked out of a space on the floor in a bank that she had a stake in, keeping her papers and suitcases scattered around her um, again, all to avoid paying for office space. My God. So for those of you who think that she's just having a, a, a boss moment. It is safe to say that her penny pinching reached beyond healthy frugality into the realm of the pathological and weird. Yeah, it's like there's definitely like something like neurological there where like it was like drilled into her as a child, like never spend money unless you're dying. And she was like, OK, I, mean, I won't. If you've ever been around people who grew up during the Great Depression. Very similar. Yeah, not to this extreme, but they are prone to be very very hard to get to spend money because i mean when they were growing up they made do with almost nothing right and you know if you're conditioned to handle that kind of thing then yeah, yeah. that's a great way to save your cash but most it, of us are not accustomed to living that way right but also it seems like she grew up like in wealth i i, I wonder where this was like drilled into her psyche that like spending was I evil i don't know I really don't know, and I don't think anyone does. I yeah. was not able to find any kind of reliable um, <clears throat> source on where she might have picked this habit up. Now, lest we think that Hetty was some kind of Cruella DeVille, uh, storybook villain born of pure malice, first of all, considering what we've just talked about, some of this was probably the result of some kind of chronic mental illness. Absolutely. Like, I, I am, again, I am an armchair psychologist at absolute best, and I'm only an armchair psychologist because I'm sitting in an armchair right now. <laughs> but some of this screams OCD to me. Yeah. Like, 
pathological aversions to things, you know, a, a lot yeah. of times that's that or some kind of anxiety disorder. Yeah, to the point um, where it seems like hygienically speaking, like she's not doing well. Like no. Yeah, she she is actively making her life considerably worse yeah. to avoid spending money. Her, That's her, when it becomes a problem. Her son fucking lost the leg because of this shit. Like, this is not yeah. normal. And other people and other people's lives worse. Yes, I yeah. forgot about that. So, um, that said, it does bear noting that Hetty was actually a fairly dedicated philanthropist. She gave to a number of worthy causes, although this was largely unknown during her lifetime because she preferred to do it as anonymously as possible. Okay. This is this is another classic Quaker principle. Charity for the sake of charity, not to get credit for it. Again, the religion that just made too damn much sense. Yeah. You know, I I could give, you know, all of this money to the to the preacher in the in the Gucci suit. Or I could just, you know, give some down to the soup kitchen, but I, I think I'm gonna give it to the Gucci suit guy. I think he's got the best idea. So that's what we're calling Kanye West now? Do you know what? I'm sure I'm sure there are people who are I'm not (laughs) it makes me sad yeah it really does so in any event despite how cheap she was after she passed a lot of people did have good things to say about Hetty as a person um as is often the case with insane rich people she did not exactly get more normal (laughs) as she got older they tend to just start sliding and keep sliding until they hit the floor. Like I'm picturing the crazy cat lady from Simpsons, but with billions. You're not too far off. (laughs) Um, Later in life, she developed a hernia, which instead of getting treated by a doctor, because of course such things cost money, Mm -hmm. she preferred to push it down with a stick. Oh, fuck. Although, this is turn of the century America, so the treatment at the doctor's office might just have been push it down with a stick. But but the doctor at least like kind of th- knew where to push it, maybe. Yeah, you, you, DIY medical care is not a good idea. I think that's something we've established on this show at, at multiple points. Mm. Um, she also developed, and this is something else that tells me that maybe her, her brain had not been uh, firing on all cylinders for a long time. She also uh, noticed an uptick in her longstanding fear of being poisoned. This woman had a phobia of being poisoned. Because she poisoned all of her family previously, and she knew it was her time to get poisoned. I'm not saying that. <laughs> um, I'm not not saying that yeah. necessarily, I, but I'm not I'm, saying that. I'm, I'm, saying, I'm, thinking I'm saying we it. can't prove that. <laughs> yeah. I won't say it on tape, but I'm, so. I'm thinking it. <laughs> So in 1916, uh, Hetty Green finally passed away at age 81. I mean, despite having a hernia that she was just jamming <laughs> yeah. back in there with a fucking doorstop, like she she made it for a yeah. while. Like like money doesn't cure like a lot of things. It can help help you live longer though. She probably could have lived to be yeah. a fucking hundred if she had you know used her money healthily. So it's been reported, and again, this could be an apocryphal story. We're not 100% sure, but it's like the Guinness Book of World Records printed this. So uh, somebody with a lot more clout than us is willing to go on record with it, is all I'll say. But apparently it's reported that she died of a stroke after an intense argument with the maid over the virtues of skimmed milk. (laughs) 
So she literally died the way every rich person dreams of dying. <laughs> Stark raving mad and screaming at the servants. Well, arguing that the milk could be watered down more and could have been thinner and lasted longer. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get that whole milk shit. We can cut that. This milk is still opaque. <laughs> I need to be able to see my hand through the other side of this glass of milk. So. That's going to bring me to my big question for the one of you. Um, we have discussed some really bonkers rich people these last two weeks with some pretty ridiculous spending habits in two different directions. But there are some people who become famous for spending insane amounts of money on one certain indulgence, be that one big ass thing or just a bunch of things. You know, some people have like a hundred grand worth of shoes in their closet or something like that. So if you were to be one of these psycho rich people and you were to become famous for spending a shitload of money on one thing, what are you buying? I'm going to get really into belt buckles. Um, like not even just like nice ones, like the real trashy ones. Like when you see it, like the state fair, when they have like little pop bigger in Texas. I've never been to Texas, but I'm buying 17 of them. I'm buying like all of the Bob Marley ones that are just like, I smoke weed so much, dude. I'm buying all of those. I'm buying all of. I think I saw a Bob Marley shirt that literally had that. Phrase. <laughs> <laughs> just says, I just smoke so much weed, dude. Uh, I'm buying all of just the shittiest, shittiest belt buckles in the world. I'm uh, not buying any of the Confederate ones because fuck those. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. buy them and melt them and then throw them at the people selling them. Uh, but I'm buying every shitty belt buckle that I can ever find. Uh, inspired partly by the American Dad episode where uh, Principal Lewis has one with uh, Tweety Bird saying there is no God. Yeah, I, I've been I've wanted that belt for <laughs> so long. His eyes are red from smoking it. too much weed. Weed. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, oh, God, this this was a tough one for me. Um, honestly, so if I'm being honest with myself, it's probably going to be records. Yeah. I'm probably going to have a shitload of vinyl. That's an um, easy way to just lose a lot of money quickly. But if I'm thinking for, for comedic value, I'm going to buy every honking clown nose <laughs> that I can possibly get my hands on. Why you ask? Because I want people to ask why. <laughs> I want it publicized that I'm buying up all of these clown noses. And I'm going to be very coy and secretive about what I'm using them for. I'm not going to do anything with them, yeah. except I will probably like wear one around the house yeah. because that's just fun. I, I like that because there's going to be a tabloid run where it is like Cody is honking mad and it's got a really bad Photoshop of you holding like 25 clown noses in your arms. That or it's going to be a bad paparazzi shot of me wearing one of the clown noses and like, looks like somebody's been doing coke. <laughs> Nose looks like a fucking Macintosh apple. <laughs> All right. Good answers uh, to both of us. I'll give myself a good answers there. That brings us to Jack John. Jack John, who's your guy? Uh, we've talked a lot about travelers on this show, yet somehow I think we've managed to miss a, a one-of-a-kind traveler, uh, or at least unless I'm forgetting somebody that we haven't really talked about. Uh, and today, I think that should stop. Uh, and I think it's time we take a look at some of the early 1900s best, worst kind of travelers, Antarctic Expedition Guys. 
Uh, I thought you were going to say time travelers. I was getting really jazzed. <laughs> and with that, my guy this week is Aeneas McIntosh. Full... I'm, I'm sorry, it's who? Aeneas McIntosh. Full name Aeneas Lionel Acton McIntosh. That is not a real person. That is a fucking garden gnome, <laughs> is the name that you just said. Aeneas McIntosh. Aeneas McIntosh lives in a little windmill on a miniature golf course. Aeneas McIntosh cannot be a human. Aeneas McIntosh sounds like one of the early programs that you would run on a computer. <laughs> uh, oh, early, early programs. <laughs> yeah, uh, but he was born July 1st, 1879 in Turhut, an area and at the time uh, owned um, British owned land in India. Now, Aeneas's family name had a little bit of weight to it, uh, or at least it did when he was born. It turns out that Aeneas was actually born heir to the chieftainship under his father, Alexander McIntosh. The chieftainship of this little British-owned colony? Yeah. Um, they're going to put Aeneas McIntosh in charge is what they're going to do. Uh, the link to the chieftainship would break shortly after his birth, however, as his mother, Annie McIntosh, would leave her husband abruptly while taking the six children with her back to Britain. The reason for the separation is unknown, but we do know that around the same time, Aeneas's father had come down with Bright's disease, a case of ye old kidney failure that would slowly take his life. Yeah. Oh, mom, I was going to be the fucking king. <laughs> I'm sure they would have loved I this go to school. I'm sure they would have loved this little white boy in India. Uh, but after returning to Britain, Aeneas would have... Since when did the Brits give a shit? They took over that whole continent. Or... Yeah, no, they did. They, they, they took did. over that whole place almost. But after returning to Britain, Aeneas would enroll at Bedford Modern School. And he would attend school until the age of 16, where he would leave to start his life uh, at sea as a merchant naval officer. So get, getting back into British Navy guys. After an apprenticeship, he would join the P&O line and be recruited for his first big job, sailing to Antarctica as a part of the Nimrod expedition. Wonder why they called it that. Probably because you'd have to be a fucking Nimrod to sail to Antarctica. Yes, the real name of this very serious journey to Antarctica had a very real and at times very fitting name as the Nimrod expedition. This expedition was set to start in 1907 and had the very modest goal of reaching the geographical South Pole and South Magnetic Pole. Simple enough. This expedition was led by a man named Ernest Shackleton, a future guy in his own right if I ever get to covering his entire story. Okay. Shackleton had been told about our guy Aeneas and that he would be a perfect a fit for the trip, a fresh and young kid out of school ready to do what it takes to get the job done. And Aeneas started doing just that. He put in the work, helping get things ready for the trip, and really impressed his superiors. And was an all-pro corner for the St. Louis Rant. Oh, wait, that's a different Aeneas. Never mind. The Go on. The expedition made a pit stop in New Zealand, and during the stopover, Shackleton took notice and fully officially added Aeneas into the team. On January 31st in 1908, the Nimrod would arrive in McMurdo Sound, an area directly south of New Zealand, known for being the southernmost body of water that is passable by ship at Antarctica. This is the point where the team would launch 
for the expedition on foot, approximately 1,300 kilometers from the South Pole. So they're so they're gonna fucking walk. They're they're gonna trek and like, not quite ski, but use like, like equivalent kind of materials to just go Snow to the shoes. North Pole. Yeah. Now fucking fucking Nimrods, man. Yeah. Just wait. Uh, table that thought, if you will. Now, getting the ship Drink. into land and offloading all the people and gear was not such an easy task. This is the 19... 19- yeah, literally none of this is. Yeah. All of this is very hard. <laughs> this is the 1900s, and while you might think that a naval officer would be best suited in a matter of docking a ship, the ice caps don't really give you the best sort of landing spot, and it's not exact where you're going to end with your ship. This is where our guy Aeneas would have his first run of bad luck while under the watch of Shackleton. Aeneas was helping transfer some gear needed for the expedition off of the ship. This is when catastrophe would strike. While moving gear, a hook from the ship would come free-swinging haphazardly striking Aeneas. The hook made direct contact with his right eye, and per the source that I used for this piece, would, quote, virtually destroy his eye. Yeah, I bet. I don't know if you've ever seen those hooks they attach to those pulleys for lifting things up and off of shifts. They're like 20 pounds yeah. of just solid iron. And just hooked him by the eye. Or at best case scenario, just smacked him in his orbital bone. Yeah, if I'm that guy, I'm going home at that point. Turn this fucking boat around. <laughs> the crew acted fast, taking Aeneas directly to the captain's quarters for immediate surgery with the help of the ship's doctor successfully removing the damaged eye while using what can be kindly described as improvised equipment. So he was slightly less drunk than your average ship's doctor. I think he hadn't had enough time to get fully drunk, so he was able to at least do the job he was required to do. Uh, Lucky break. But on the plus side, the crew said that Aeneas took the shot like a champ, and they were so impressed with how he handled the blow to the eye. Um... The loss of his eye, though, meant that Aeneas would not go any further into the expedition, and after helping the team, he was sent back to New Zealand, where he would wait for the... Uh, they did, however, make him... They did, however, make him captain of the boxing team. <laughs> this would not end his aid of the Nimrod expedition fully, though. After healing up, he would uh, head back down with the team in January of 1909 to help with the later stages of the trip. It was said that Shackleton even wanted Aeneas to be the captain for the journey back to Antarctica for the final leg, but his eye had not fully healed enough to make that idea a reality. So, like, Captain, like, the captain is still full in, like, yeah, no, Aeneas is my dude. Uh, it's too bad about that bum eye, though. Yeah. Well, depth perception <laughs> is an important part of piloting a ship. Ah, I'm sure this won't, this won't have an impact on his life at all. <laughs> During this trip back to Antarctica in 1909, the Nimrod ran into an issue. The ship had gotten stuck in ice some 25 miles away from the landing point. Ever the journeyman, Aeneas decided to cross the last section on foot. The no! J- <laughs> the journey to land... Go ahead. How? How did you think this would end well? I mean... the the, the dumbest goddamn thing I've ever heard. And I do this show. (laughs) 
The journey to land was described as, quote, one of the most ill-considered parts of the entire expedition. And this expedition and started with somebody saying something. And it started with somebody losing a fucking eye. Aeneas tracked out. Well, uh, it can only get better from here, right? You would hope. Aeneas trekked out with three sailors on the morning of January 3rd. They packed up their supplies and launched, but shortly after, two of the sailors had returned, because again, they were literally walking on thin ice for this trip. Aeneas and the other sailors, still out in the ice, would make it as far as they could before camping out overnight to try to get back some energy after the next day of full-on stupid hiking some more. They woke the next morning... Two inches of ice. They woke the next morning in true terror, as the ice around them had broken up overnight. Yeah. They then played the world's most dangerous game of hopscotch as they dashed to the shore before reaching a small glacier where they could set up camp. Aeneas wrote in his own journal, stating, Our luck was in, and we pulled the sledge a little way up the face of the ice and unpacked it. We were on a terra firma, but none too soon for 15 minutes later, there was open water where we had gained the land. Literally everything is falling apart around them, and they're luckily somehow setting up camp on a glacier. The world's most difficult game of Frogger. Yeah, <laughs> just pure luck. They set up camp on the glacier amidst a snowstorm. Due to snow blindness and the one good eye uh, Aeneas actually had, they were stranded for days until the weather had let up enough for them to see their way back to the Cape. The journey was more perilous than they had hoped, as to get back they needed to go through several miles of snow trenches and even deep crevices into the earth. The duo had to bail on much of their equipment as it weighed them down and caused more harm than good during this leg of their journey. They would somehow stumble back into a member of their expedition party miles later on what can best be summed up as dumb luck. Aeneas would stay back with the ship while the rest of the group would finish the expedition, the group sadly not making it the full journey to the South Pole, coming up just a few degrees short. So, the first leg of the Nimrod, the first full expedition into it, um, he loses an eye, he gets lost in the wilderness, and also the group didn't actually make their objective. Pretty pretty good trip, I think. Yeah, I mean, you're batting a solid zero there. <laughs> Aeneas would return to Britain after the hard journey, and would be greeted with a discharge notice since he only had one fucking eye. Well, best of luck. <laughs> this would not end his journeying spirit, however. Anitas had made an ally in Shackleton, and that relationship would continue to pay off in a new opportunity. The Shackleton would divide his company into two groups, a six-man team led by himself that would march across Antarctica again, and a new supporting party called the, Ro uh, the Ross Sea Party, which would be based on a further uh, spot down the continent. The goal of the Ross Sea Party was to lay down supply drops at various points to aid the other team. Shackleton had a full time, uh, or sorry, had a hard time filling the lead for this role, surprisingly. He had offered the job originally to Eric Marshall, the surgeon from the first leg of the tour, who had repaired uh, our boy Aeneas's eye, who politely declined because he had wanted nothing to do with this anymore, and another man declined the opportunity as well. <laughs> Saw what happened to that last fucking guy. Yeah, they, they landed and then a dude lost his eye. He's fucking out. Yeah. 
Here in comes our guy Aeneas McIntosh, who says yes to the opportunity. He would arrive in Australia in October of 1914, ready for the job before getting hit with immediate setbacks again. Without notice, Shackleton had cut funds to the Ross Sea Party by half. It was up to Aeneas to figure out how to make up that money, and to do that, he would try to mortgage part of the ship to raise additional funds needed. A simple enough plan, which just mortgage off part of which your ship. Part, like, is there a specific part they specify? Like, if you don't pay the loan back, do they just come take like the front half of the ship? You know what? Uh, Imagine it's just kind of like, hey, I'm going to put this in this bank's name and um, I'm going to have part ownership as well. And um, you guys are going to be cool about this. Uh, but, I'm sure that worked perfectly. Uh, but another problem arose when they tried to do this. Turns out the ship for this journey the Aurora wasn't legally owned by the group yet, and they still needed to pay off quite a bit of money on it. <laughs> So they mortgage this house that I just put a down payment on. Yeah. yeah. A minor setback, but they used some of their funds to fix that issue until a new issue arose. Turns out the ship was in God awful condition and needed extensive overhaul and repairs. So much so that the Australian government was needed to step in and help fix up a few things. This giant pain in the ass soured the entire operation in the eyes of many of the Australians who were tired of putting up with this bullshit already, and also were needed to help staff the already short-staffed journey as well. So they're just pissing yeah, off I mean, everybody. I, I can imagine the Aussies are like, I don't give a fuck about going to fucking Antarctica. I am not giving you any more money for this, because I this, this does nothing for me. Yeah. Oh, and right before the launch of the operation, Shackleton changed how long he thought the journey would take throwing a massive wrench into the entire formula that had been thought out to this point. Yeah, I mean, you got to ration out your supplies. You got to, I mean, you really need to plan all yeah. of this stuff down to the last detail. This is also the early 1900s where you can't just like call up somebody and be like, hey, we're doing this in 10 days instead of eight now. So the entire trip planned around and schemed, but Shackleton didn't tell his men what they were supposed to do. The trip runs from January to March, and it was entirely off schedule and filled with chaos and delays. By the time Aeneas... Yeah, nobody knows what they're doing. By the time Aeneas... They're just sitting on the fucking New Zealand coast running around jerking off all day. By the time he would get his group to port in Antarctica, another issue would arise yet again. The Aeneas still thinks that Shackleton is on a different schedule and is pushing hard so he can get there to meet him at that point. A captain at the base camp, though, who either knew better or just stopped to think for two seconds about what was happening, advised Aeneas to not go so fast and to just wait uh, out everything. Um, basically saying, hey, uh, the men for this trip need a lot more training and nobody is ready for this shit. So but, just cool your jets. Yeah. Uh, Aeneas, uh, very, very wisely, ignored this plea fully and encountered the following issues while traveling out a blizzard delay, mechanical breakdowns, and straight up getting lost in the fucking snow. Yeah. Yeah, when you set out on an expedition like this with no clue what you're doing, things are going to go bad quickly. The inexperienced group was so overwhelmed that much of the cargo was dumped or just straight up lost in transit. 
Even Aeneas's own men begin to turn on him. One wrote in his journal, quote, I don't know how to refrain from giving Mac a bit of my mind. We'll have to wait until we get back. We will have enough to think about before then till we get to that point. Basically saying, I don't have the energy to fucking yell at you, but I'm going to yell at you at some point. Remind me to remind me to kill you later. Yeah. <laughs> the waiting delay into Aeneas would have to wait a little bit longer. As just before they hit Hut Point, the area they were trying to get to, they were cut off uh, by the base camp due to an unsafe, uh, um, uh, unsafe ice, forcing them to wait an additional three months. So basically, the ice broke in front of them, and they couldn't get where they need to go, so they had to wait even longer. Yeah, I, I just I'm just not getting good vibes out of this whole thing, man. <laughs> Either in denial or manifesting positive vibes to their absolute extreme, Aeneas would write in his own journal that June, all is working smoothly here, and everyone is taking this situation very philosophically. Yeah, it's throwing them all into existential hell. <laughs> all sitting around going, why am I here? What is the point of all of this? <laughs> Look, I, 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 I've been here, I've been out here for months, and I actually think I hate snow. So, um, I think I'm going to go home now. I haven't eaten real food in 90 days. <laughs> Luck finally breaks, and the men can make it to Cape Evans in early June. They aim to get aboard their ship, the Aurora. But one more massive issue hits the group, because that just seems to be their luck here. It's basically what, what I was like, how I felt when I was researching this, is it's basically the story of the Odyssey. It's just yeah, pretty much everything keeps going wrong. The ship that had been anchored into the ice had broken free from the shore and was adrift at sea now. The conditions over the following yeah. days made it clear that the ship was lost to the sea. <laughs> yeah, that's that is one of the worst things I think that could possibly happen to someone in this situation. You just wake up one morning, you're in Antarctica and the fucking ship is gone. The group of 10 men were now stranded at port and were running low on resources. All of these fuck-ups compounded and keep isolating Aeneas further and further from his own men. They fucking hate him at this point. Yeah. Since the men were stranded, they aimed to work with what they could and began to work towards the next leg of the future expedition. Because if they're here, they may as well do something to keep their bodies active. On September 1st, 1915, the men began hauling uh, stores of supplies from the Cape. They would aim to lay down uh, depots of supplies like they previously had, all the way down to Mount Hope, a trek that would launch fully the following year. Aeneas once again came into an argument with one of his men on the way to do this. The clashing of methods came to a head as Aeneas would eventually stand down for once due to an overwhelming proof that he was in the wrong. He finally fucking listened. Yeah, this is uh, he. This is what we call the Long John Silver treatment. Yeah, <laughs> eventually your crew is gonna get fed up. I honestly am surprised by this point. They didn't just eat him. Well, give it time. The main stretch of the journey began January first in nineteen sixteen. This was a brutal march up to the frozen nothing. Three men would drop out quickly into the mission. And later, as the party got closer, one of the men would collapse and require medical attention for most of the party. 
Aeneas said fuck slowing down and kept pushing on, saying that the job needed to be done. And miraculously, on January 26th, the last depot was placed. Uh, but just because he got to his goal didn't mean the job was done, as he still had to get back. And then a meteor hit them and they all died. Seems to be how this <laughs> thing's going. Heavily debilitated from the cold conditions and now suffering from scurvy, Aeneas is an absolute wreck on his feet. So he's got he's got one eye, he's got scurvy, and he's been shipwrecked. And frostbite, yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a pirate yeah. at this point. <laughs> You're not even a scientist anymore. You're just a fucking yeah. pirate. So now it's time to get back down to the base camp. Aeneas pushes with one of the other men against better judgment after the others have retreated previously to help the injured uh, member of the party and had come back to get Aeneas and his friend. When those men came back to the aid, they noticed that Aeneas was gone. They tracked his footprint. <laughs> they tracked his footprints, but after two days of heavy blizzards, he was simply gone. Jesus. Either having fallen through the ice or having been estimated to have been blown out to sea by the wind and other breaking pieces of the ice. Nimrod. And thus is the miraculous story of probably the worst expedition to Antarctica, or at least the most, like, haphazard one. I think Nimrod is the perfect word that accidentally described the entire operation. Uh, but Aeneas is just one member of the Nimrod expedition. It did like three treks to Antarctica, and there's a bunch of other people who are like more known for what happened in it. But Aeneas just seemed to kind of just like exist as like a punching bag for the gods of ice. <laughs> yeah, it was followed by uh, the other unsuccessful expeditions, Dipshit and Chucklefuck, <laughs> which uh, met with similar fates, unsurprisingly. But that's going to be the story, which leads me to my big question. Uh, Antarctica, um, cool or overrated? I mean, at a time when we had not yet seen what Antarctica was, I could understand somebody thinking it was cool that we had finally managed to get there. But when they got there, what did they get? Snow, ice, fucked by a polar bear. <laughs> just. What what do you got? Oh, we've seen Antarctica. Okay. What did you see? Exactly. Was it just a bunch of ice and snow? I bet it was a bunch of ice and snow. <laughs> we don't need that. Well, we do, but we don't need to see it. Yeah. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say overrated. I, I understand their reasoning here, but ultimately yeah. I'd say for Aeneas particularly, not worth it. Yeah. Yeah, he he lost an eye and then died while freezing to death. Um in, in his case, absolutely not worth it. In modern cases, I hate snow in like a two inch level. I would absolutely hate Antarctica with every fiber of my being. Um, and Metallica ruined it by playing there once. So, yeah, overrated. Yeah, I was I was going to say, I, I was hoping that when they came back to find Aeneas, they just found him frozen solid like Jack Nicholson <laughs> in The Shining. <laughs> He's one of those like perfectly preserved cubes. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jack John, for that. And uh, that brings us to the close of, yeah, a slightly shorter episode of Here's a Guy. 
Um, not as obnoxious in length, <laughs> but uh, we're very glad you stuck it out. And again, uh, thoughts out to Alex as he uh, continues his ongoing battle with a uh, cat that's gotten a little too big for his uh, feline britches. So we're going to wrap this up the way we always do. And that is first and foremost, by a shameless self-promotion, we're going to hawk our shit. Jack, John, where can the folks find you? Oh, yeah. The people can find me on Twitter at Jack John Jose. You can find me on my personal Twitch channel at Jack John Plays Games, uh, where I'll be doing my last big stream January 26th. Going to do a subathon. Uh, Going to gonna stream like a huge marathon stream uh, as a way to kick off uh, me being a father and also uh, taking like a, a brief hiatus from streaming for a while. Um, and you can also find me on Here's an Adventure uh, a, a podcast format and uh, Twitch format of D&D that we hope to get launching soon uh, in podcast form and relaunching on Twitch. Um, and yeah, uh, also follow Alex on uh, Twitter at Turpin4Prez. That's Turpin, the number four, P-R-E-Z. Uh, let me do one more Alex plug. Uh, what about you, Cody? And also, do you have a tagline for it? Oh, I'll get to that. We we don't do the tagline. Oh. See, this is why I, yeah. we should have just taken this week off. Yeah, because I knew you were going to get out of pocket and it was well, going to fuck the whole thing up. You, usually Alex is there to wrap up after you to bring it in. So I wasn't right. sure. I, I fucked it up. I, yeah, I, well, I, I haven't gone. I haven't gone yet. That's true. That's true. Let me hawk my shit. Yeah. So first of all, you can find me weekly here on uh, Here's a Guy uh, with maybe Alex and maybe Jack, because Jack may be getting kicked off uh, for, for fucking things up just now. And also... Alex might have been deposed by Freddie as the head of the household. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll see. But uh, I'll be here regardless on Spotify, Stitcher and Google Podcasts. Uh, also, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Son of Gravy for 2069. And you can find me on that Twitch channel. Here's an adventure as well. That's twitch.tv slash. Here's an adventure. By the way, want to point out once again that we do, in fact, have a Gmail. So if you want to send us some uh suggestions comments uh prompts not unlike what jeremy's been sending us we've been having a great time with those um yeah shoot it to here's a mailbox at gmail.com all right uh cody do you have a tagline yes i do so i god i, I didn't really think about the mechanics of how we were actually going to do this yeah that's why i was I like uh, we'll just throw it early <laughs> yeah we'll just figure it out all right so uh, once again, thanks for joining us, everybody on Here's a Guy. And uh, thanks again to all of us for sticking with us, even without Alex. That's going to do it for us here on Here's a Guy. And to finish things out, me, hit us with that tagline. Hey, kids, there's no reason to ever go to Antarctica. Just don't do it. No point whatsoever. Dumb idea. Top to bottom. Cut it out. Quit fucking with that place. There's nothing there for you. Bye, daddies. <laughs>